Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast. It's an audiobook club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I'm Aubrey Hicks, I'm the Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and today we're talking about the biggest work of community we face, the climate crisis. We're discussing All We Can Save, which is a collection of essays and poems edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Katherine K. Wilkinson, and all the ways that we need to work together to fix the damage that we have contributed to. With me today are three amazing women who have been working in climate change every day. So I'm sort of going to go alphabetical. So Anna Cummins, can you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? So happy to be here and thanks for the invitation. My name is Anna Cummins and I'm currently the co-founder of an organization called Five Gyres. We've been working for the last 10 years on plastic pollution starting in the oceans and moving further and further upstream. And as one theme came up in this book, we're now seeing more and more intersections around plastic and the climate crisis. Um, but my journey really began around food and uh, really learning more about food justice and equity and um, hoping that these things can all come together in, in my future work. Excellent. Thank you. And Jen, can you introduce yourself and a little bit about what you do to our listeners? Thank you so much, Aubrey. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm Jen Bravo. I'm president of my own consulting firm of my own name, and I'm also working for an organization here in Los Angeles called Accelerate Resilience LA and spending my days thinking about the ways in which we can foster community resilience to survive and thrive uh, through the climate crisis. Excellent. Thank you. And Lauren Turk, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks for having me. I'm wearing two hats right now. One is as Director of Partnerships for Dashboard Earth, which is a technology platform that's finding ways to engage residents of Los Angeles and, um, and eventually, hopefully, the whole country in climate actions that are local and personalized and sometimes even incentivized so that everyone can be involved in the vital work of climate solutions and connected to the amazing organizations, as well as ways that we can change our own lifestyle that contribute toward building resilience. So that's one thing that fills my days. And I'm also the founder and CEO of my own company called Fair Zero. And we're working on making composting more accessible, as well as supporting the organizations that are composting and filling in um, regional infrastructure that kind of brings it all together to create an ecosystem of zero waste worlds. Thank you. And thank you all for, for joining this conversation. I'm really excited to, to hear what you think about the book. So I guess just before we begin sort of really getting in, do you want to share your sort of initial reactions to the book? Was it something that resonated with you? Was it something that you sort of feel like you've heard and and felt time and time again? Yeah, I'll I'll start. Um, the my my initial reaction to the book was one of a feeling sort of of yeses as I read through it through all of the essays and through the poems. I was constantly hearing myself say yes, and it's do so much to the themes that repeat 
essentially through all of the the essays and the poems, which really are are themes of connection and community and coming together to heal the damage that we've you know contributed to many times, not knowing that we were contributing to it. And so, to me, it was it was a really lovely experience of of being so glad that people are doing this work, excited and hopeful about the work that's being done and being able to contribute to it. I can jump in. I, I agree with a lot of Jen said. And I also went through a real journey reading this book. Uh, I think before I started the book, I expected that I would walk away feeling nothing but inspiration and positivity. Reading the book, I went through quite a roller coaster of emotions, a lot of which was honestly um, feelings of despair, just with the reminders of, of the reality. There was no sugarcoating, and there was a lot of just real um, reflection on, on where we are at this as point in history. And I also saw a lot of myself in a lot of the psychological profiles from, you know, eco depression to an ability to compartmentalize and just go on with our everyday lives. But I, I think my overall takeaway is one of, of positivity, not one of false optimism, but one of just renewed inspiration to keep doing the work and how important it is, as Jen said, to really be engaging at this at a community level. Yeah, that resonates. Um, I also went through a journey reading it and was really moved also by the format of the book as I feel the, the way that the book was brought together, um, you know, a chorus of voices and perspectives is so indicative of the way forward, you know, um, what it will take in terms of a paradigm shift and how we do things, how we do things together. I found that to be a beautiful, you know, undertone that just, it just kept reminding me as I was reading it, you know, going through the the process of like, Yes, yes, that's totally it. And then, oh, I'm feeling that too. And then just the all of it, holding all of it, the holism was was really powerful for me. And I just loved the way that the editors put it together with, you know, the diversity of perspectives, the art, the poetry. It's so feminine, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, so democratic too, you know, that it's yes. people from so many different fields, different races, different backgrounds, different, you know, yeah, that, that is another thing that really resonated with me, how, you know, they sort of chose to model how we move forward and, you know, the importance of art and how we tell stories, the different ways the essays were written, all of that. Yeah. I really, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and really, and really feeling that. I also really appreciated that, you know, like you said, Anna, the, the no sugar coating, you know, the, the parts about, you know, climate grief really made me feel like, okay, like it's not just me. You know, I sometimes, f- you know, sort of feel like, wallowing in, you know, this sort of existential dread, you know, and I think particularly this year, it's felt, you know, more overwhelming in that seeing what's happening with politics and the pandemic and, you know, just sort of feeling like, oh, gosh, you know, how can we overcome this? And recognizing that we're not alone in that, I think is really, was really important to me. Um, And recognizing that those people, you know, those other people still go on and do the work and that it's okay to feel those feelings and still do what you need to do. 
Yeah, that's one of the things I think is so special about this collection and is so different from most of the other books that I've read about the climate crisis is that this book was truly done from a, a sort of a holistic feminist perspective of bringing your whole self to the work and not compartmentalizing away the emotion of the work and that the emotion is actually core to the work. Love, deep, deep love for each other and for place is absolutely core to this work and that that's sort of what can maintain us um, in the fight. Like without that deep connection and deep love and bringing our whole selves, we get burnout, we get so exhausted. I mean, and I think we all do anyway, but that that like welling up of love and connection is the thing that can sustain us in work that seems so so sort of impossible, right? It's it seems it's so big. Yeah. It's an honesty that's missing from your typical more academic approach to learning about climate crisis, which is important, you know, knowing the facts and figures, but the the honesty around around that piece, I, I found really refreshing. And an acknowledgement that in spite of all of this, it may work and it may not. And even to say that it works is is complex and nuanced. And, you know, what exactly are we talking about? But yeah, that's the part I think I resonated the most with because I find that often missing in my own life. I don't give myself permission enough just with the busyness of running an organization and being a mother and all the running around. I don't let myself stop and feel nearly enough. Um, and that, as Jen said, really does lead to, can lead to burnout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think Lauren, you brought um, up a little bit about the structure of the of the book. I was really interested in the way they sectioned the book into these eight themes. And for me, I really thought the way they brought us from you know a beginning of of rooting through to rising just really. <laughs> It made my heart sing. I mean, it was just, it really felt like those essays and the way that we progressed through those different themes felt like that is the way we do the work. Did you feel that the the themes really um, worked well? Did you have a favorite section? Those are two sort of questions, but did you feel like the themes worked well? Yeah, I was vibing with it as well with the sections, with the arc. Um, it was, it's like a meta story. Um, or an overstory and that kind of just even just overstory there's a great book called the overstory it's all about the forest and yeah so it's like there's just these these compounding metaphors that are so thematic and just speak to the interconnectedness and the circularity right which are one and the same how it all comes together and um, so that really just I thought it was perfect and in terms of sections that spoke to me, I'm a little biased because I'm obsessed with compost and soil regeneration. So Nourish felt really good. I really enjoyed that section. But also the reshape and reframe sections were, I found them to be very powerful. I think mainly because I think some of the struggles that I come across and that I see my peers coming across is like, how do we talk about this? How do we invite everyone into the conversation to feel like an owner of the conversation, like a vital contributor to the conversation, which they are. And we live in this time where there's so much misinformation and fusion and trauma that hasn't been addressed or healed. You know, there's it's just, there's layers upon layers of why 
we're fragmented, but how do we move forward? How do we reshape and reframe and talk about this stuff in a way that's inclusive and and considerate and contextually appropriate? I mean, I just found that those sections to be so rich and relevant and helpful. So I really enjoyed some of those pieces and would be happy to to dive into them more once we hear from everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those sections were really meaningful to me in a couple of ways, because if we if we think about, you know, one of the themes throughout the book is that in a way, climate change isn't the problem. Climate change is a symptom of a series of other problems, a series of systems of exploitation, extraction, dominance. And, you know, those core issues are sort of balanced by the solution themes that we're seeing of connection and collaboration and healing and regeneration. And if we think about what actually has to happen to solve this crisis, it's a reshaping of those underlying systems and what has to happen for that reshaping to take place. So much of it is in us changing the way we think about what's possible. What kinds of stories are we actually telling ourselves and each other about the world that we could build? And how can we talk to people about that world and how we can all contribute to that world? So those two sections taken together, just like Lauren said, I thought were really powerful. And I actually got a ton of like very sort of tangible advice. Like I pulled a lot of really tangible pieces from those sections that I can take into my work, which I thought was really, really lovely. That is really lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I better say something different then, since you both. <laughs> no, I did. I did actually love those two. And as a fellow um, compost and overstory lover, um, I loved anything to do with the biomimicry and the and the connection to nature and the discussion that we have, or that we've we've in many cases lost that discussion with natural systems. But going back to what we were talking about before, I think the the section that had the most essays that I resonated with was the feel section. Mm. Um, A couple in particular, just balancing motherhood, parenting, um, the work, the urgency of the work, um, and how to balance these these two really vital um, journeys in my own life, which is being a mother to my child, and then also taking on this work that feels really important, and and how to not drop the ball on either of them. but yeah, going back to the to the themes, I think just looking at the the table of contents alone is like reading reading prose. Looking at the sections um, and reading the different titles um, is is almost like reading part of the book itself. Um, so I love that about it as well. Oh, I love that you said that. I've been you know thinking about the the artifact of the book and how I love at each beginning of each section. And I didn't write the artist's name down. It's in the it's in With the, the artwork. Yes, mm-hmm. so I started following her on Instagram, and my my fibrofog is saying I can't remember her name. But the the just the the visual imagery and how they carry that throughout the sparse words that get you sort of into what the section is going to be. It felt, um, and this is a word that we might use a lot, holistic today, and that was really important. Um, particularly, this is an aside, but the the other book that we decided to read this month is it was called the the Nature of Desert Nature, and I really wanted to sort of look at um, a collection of essays specifically about one kind of um, ecology, and 
you know, the difference between these two books has been really stark in that the nature of desert nature was a lot of uh, men. It was a lot of white men. It was a lot of older white men. Um, and there was this feeling of nostalgia, of sort of looking back, whereas this, all women, feels very much like we're really thinking, you know, in that sort of seven generation thinking that we're thinking forward, which, you know, when we look at all of these interconnected problems, really felt like, oh, this is what we need, you know, to not be continually thinking about the the present, you know, Jen talked about extractive policies, you know, that that are part of, you know, the economic system, our political system, um, our energy system, all of these things, but we wouldn't, you know, there's this sense that we wouldn't be so extractive if we were not thinking about right now, if we were thinking about our kids, our grandkids, their grandkids. Um, and so the starkness between the two books has been really, really interesting for me. That's, that's an aside, but that's one of the things that I just really felt like this was what was needed. You know, so often we're so stuck in the present. Jen, you look like you're going to say something. Go ahead. I'm just waiting to say something. (laughs) Go ahead. I agree with you that it's forward looking, but I also think it's integrative with the past. Oh, not, not like the, not like the recent past, which is basically the the 20th century, which is the century of the most extraction and the most dominance and, you know, the most sort of planetary damage we've done thus far, but, but an integration with older ways of doing things, indigenous ways of doing things, more holistic and connected ways of doing things that many people are still practicing today. Those practices aren't dead, but they are um, overshadowed by the dominant systems that we have. And so I think of it as what can we, and in a way I'm, I'm echoing Jem Bendel a little bit in his deep adaptation work where he's, he talks about what, what do we love that we can save and what do we have to let go of moving forward to do deep adaptation. And the what do we love that we can save is so much about what can we bring that we used to have sort of this like deep integrative holistic work about communities and community health and reintegration with nature uh, because you know the western western history has been domination over nature and that's one of these core problems that the book um you know that that is a theme throughout the book and so i love that it is forward-looking but not not that kind of forward-looking that we get from silicon valley not the kind of forward-looking that's like there's a silver bullet technology that's going to solve the problem. What is a truly just, equitable, healthy world that we want to build? And what can we bring uh, from the past and from present practices? And then what can we build that's new together? Indeed. Indeed. So one of the the other things that um, I agree, um, I think all of those re-words are really important. So reintegration, regenerative. I think, Lauren, a lot of the things you do are about sort of remaking the soil, right? Mm-hmm. Re and co. There's the re's and then the co, the co-creation, cooperation, um, compost, um, collaboration. <laughs> yeah, collaboration. I love how you said Community. Community, yeah. Re and co. That's like, Ooh. those are our, um, what do you call them? Uh, prefix. Is that a prefix? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
right? Yeah. Those are our prefixes. Yeah, it just, uh, and I agree with you, you know, um, Jen, I think um, the other, <laughs> um, I was feeling lots of some of the older sort of stories coming through again, you know, the sort of older mythologies of, of how, uh, life was created, you know, this sort of, this sort of connection and the sort of relearning from indigenous communities who, you know, were really tied to place, you know, and I think, you know, this idea of, um, colonialism has taken over, but that, you know, is all about extraction. Um, and, you know, many of the people who, belong to those like settler, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a settler, you know, my family was not from uh, North America. And so, you know, that tie to place can be very difficult. And so how do you uh, relearn how you belong uh, in a place and how you belong to community? Yeah, I really like the word relearn, because you know, as a, as a white person, also from settler colonial ancestry, I, I sometimes forget that way back in there, though, <laughs> there are indigenous roots. And yeah. we all come, we all come from someplace. And we all came, you know, way back, I can't remember his name, but there is a, a man who does a practice of reconnecting uh, white people with their indigenous roots to to remind us that we also did come from place. Um, even though, you know, we, we have transported and extracted and all those things like in our DNA back there somewhere. And this may also contribute to the deep despair and trauma that we feel from being disconnected from nature, disconnected from our past, disconnected from our ability to, to find and support and build soil and, and food and all of those things. So um, I'm really curious to learn more about his work. Maybe I can find it while, while we're here. Cause I feel like that is the spiritual side um, of of the work has has been something that I've felt a, a, a grieving for, um, just in thinking of myself strictly as a white person who's completely cut off from my roots. Yeah, you know the chapter Black Gold in the Nourish section, Leah Peniman. Really, and, and I spent a lot of time thinking about soil, you know, but but that piece brought things home for me in in a in a new way. The fact that we are so estranged from the soil and that there's this old prejudice of even being in touch with the soil because slave owners had that be the work of their slaves. And so there's the trauma that people have from being forced into labor, into connection with the soil. Like what a horrible thing to do. What a horrible way to pervert that relationship on both sides. Everybody loses in that situation. And it was just, it was outlined so purely and simply and just, I don't know, I, I, I hadn't really felt it in that way before. And I, I just, I found that that piece to be so informative and vital. And it really, really stuck A with story me. about that young man. Yeah. The, oh, the I young love that story who went to the farm and he Yes, I've heard that story before. Yeah, before I've listened to a podcast of hers, and she tells that story so beautifully. And that the moment his hands hit the soil, and as a compost person, of course, you know that that, and and there's scientific studies to back it up. But just and he says, "I feel like I've come home." That was such a. I started crying when I was reading that one. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's another piece earlier on in the advocate section called Collards Are Just As Good As Kale. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I really loved that piece because it got at something that I think is really critical for all of us to address, which is this concept that nature is out there. It is something pristine and away from us. And to be an environmentalist, you are, you know, for the most part, you're like a white person, you go out, you you hug trees, and like, that's different and separate from, uh, you know, everyone else's experience. The, and the idea that um, the environment is all around us, we have natural environment, we have built environment, we are part of that environment and everything we are doing, um, for good or for ill is impacting each other and our environment. And that there is like this deep connection that black Americans have to land that is mostly missing from all of the climate conversations and all the environmental conversations. And I mean, you know, this is a podcast, so our our listeners can't see us, but we are for white women talking about these issues. And it's within environmental conversations, it is still so primarily white. And there are, I think one of the things I loved about the book was how there were so many amazing Black advocates uplifted, their voices uplifted, but they're there and they're speaking and they're working in their communities. And it's really a matter of people listening, right? It's not that these people aren't there doing the hard work. These are actually the people who are on the front lines for the most part of the climate crisis, where there's flooding, where there's toxic soil, where there's terrible air pollution that causes asthma and cancer. And so I think it's, it, it was a reminder to me that we need to be so much more dedicated to lifting up and just even handing the mic, right? Just always handing the mic to the person who's sort of on the ground doing the work because they're there and they're speaking and they need the mic. Absolutely, Jen. You're reminding me of um, one of the pieces that I deeply resonated in terms of examining my own work was um, the one called Sacred Resistance. And, um, and she, she sort of describes typical environmental NGO work and how colonial a lot of it is and are sort of supremacy oriented. And that's something I struggle with all the time. Um, I remember the first time I met an indigenous pipeline activist um, and in- instantly my mind went into like fundraising mode. What foundations could I connect him to and how could I, you know, help connect him to additional resources? And, and he, he sort of politely said something about the nonprofit industrial complex. And I admit it was the first time I'd ever heard the term. And of course I went, you know, Googling and it spoke to something that I've always felt deeply unsettled about in my own work is that I've, you know, followed into a, a pattern of founding a nonprofit organization and doing good earnest work and raising funds from donors and foundations while always wondering like, is this just part of the larger systems? Yep. Um, or, or, you know, is there another way to do this that's less status quo? I mean, the whole funding structure, we could talk about that for hours, but the fact that this work that we do, and I say we as, you know, as a, as a white environmental NGO leader is really seeking support from foundations that are deeply invested in the same things that we're fighting and yet giving back 5% of their corpus with the other 95% tied up in fossil fuels and petrochem. Absolutely. So it, I, I, I don't quite know what to do about it. And I'm, you know, wearing a bit of a new hat and trying to birth a new organization. that's been something my husband and I have dreamed of for 13 years and just wondering, you know, is, is there another way 
to do this? And I don't yet have any answer other than that we're just fiscally sponsored while we look at what are some other models. Yeah. So much of this is all coming together, right? Because um, I spent a lot of last year reading Anand Girardi's oh, book, yes. which is just so so important because it is a system. Um, you know, he calls it market world. And there was actually a section in this book that really made me think about his writings because I think it was in it was in the We Are Sunrise essay talking about people's alignments and the two primary alignments during the 20th century being the 1930s around the New Deal and then the 1980s around Reagan. And that has lasted to the present. And what Anand calls that is we're all still playing in Reagan's stadium, right? We are all playing a game of politics and policies and nonprofit work and all of this stuff within Reagan's stadium. And that is driven by a set of values that we know is incompatible with our survival, with us thriving, with having healthy communities. And how do we actually realign folks around, or what he would say is like build a new stadium. And he was talking about this a lot during the the election. He was talking a lot about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and different concepts of like, what would a new stadium look like? But I really loved the framing in this essay, which was that it is a people's alignment around a set of values. What do we truly value for going forward? But so much of that power comes from who's got the money and who's funding this stuff, right? Which gets us right back to what you're talking about, Anna, which is, you know, the people who are deeply vested in the status quo, giving 5%, and then really driving what those philanthropic solutions look like. And in many cases, it's to stave off the pitchforks. In other cases, they might truly believe that they're doing good work, but the people who are actually doing truly transformative work on the ground are not getting those big philanthropic dollars. Yeah. I think a lot of the time it doesn't trickle down because the amazing work, right? (laughs) Right. Because the amazing work being done on the ground doesn't fit in neatly to like VC paradigms or, you know, as Greta would say, uh, what does she call it? The, the, the false promise of eternal profit, you know, just like this, this ridiculous idea that, um, that we can just take, make waste endlessly and profit exponentially forever. Um, and so it's like, how do we disrupt that? And Jen, as you were speaking, you know, what would a new stadium look like in my head? I was like, it would look like a bunch of small concert halls that are distributed and regional, you know, yes, it's that's like, exactly right. And there and community <laughs> gardens, there's community gardens around all of them as well. It's not one big yeah. stadium. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it's like investing in, and I even just like resent that I just use that word, but like, it's just rethinking the whole paradigm. It's understanding how it's functioning, you know, and then seeing like, well, what's the, what's the, what is that in right relationship? You know, what does that look like if it were in right relationship with all things? And a, a lot of the time it looks like um, hyper-local distributed like ecosystems, right? That are, that are constantly seeking balance and homeostasis. It's like biomimicry, really. Um, and so, and how do we make that pop? I think demonstration projects and then um, making sure that we don't think that we're going to scale demonstration projects, but rather we think of them in, are they replicable? 
right? And so there's all of this reframing and how we're thinking about solutions and quote, scaling them, not necessarily, you know, this like panacea type of thinking of it's a one size fits all solution that applies anywhere you go. It's like, no, every place is unique, even when it comes to regenerating land. Like you can't just put compost anywhere necessarily. Like we've got pH, we've got microbes, like reality is relative and nuance needs to be taken. And it's just a completely different approach to doing things. And we have to make space for that. And um, yeah, so that's what kind of comes up for me. I get really lit up about this. <laughs> Absolutely. I just heard a lecture that I'll definitely share with you too. Um, uh, we had a lecture in the permaculture course I've been taking from Gopal Dayaneni, who's um, with a group called Movement Generation. And he was talking about that very thing, about how that still that sort of supremacy oriented mind frame of everything needs to be done bigger and better and at scale. And we need to model these small things and so that they can grow and grow rather than exactly what you're talking about, a, a, a biodiversity of solutions that really fit. Um, and, and by nature of them all sort of sparking up and, and finding connections, that is the scale. But thinking back to this funding and grassroots challenge, this came to, uh, really came to my mind deeply yesterday. Um, I joined like an advisory board for a, a group, very grassroots, amazing group in Austin, Texas called Black Lives Veggies. And the call was really about trying to help with fundraising and things like that. Um, the founder is this incredibly visionary guy who, who, who spent time incarcerated and upon getting out has really dedicated himself to bringing fresh and healthy food um, to his community in Austin, Texas. Um, but as I'm trying to give advice, I felt the same quandary I did when I was talking to the pipeline activist of, is this the right way to go, to go down this rabbit hole of getting structure and writing grants and just all the things that you have to do, which I guess is just part of playing the game um, and will to a certain extent take him away from the important work on the ground. Yeah, I have a lot of the same qualms, especially being somebody who looks at grant proposals and thinks about what mm -hmm. to fund and is constantly thinking about how do we scale something? How do we make it replicable? All of these questions. I think we saw something really interesting during the pandemic, which was a little bit of a resurgence of mutual aid. And in many mm. ways, mutual aid, I think, is the counterbalance to the superstructured, professionalized, and I'm using air quotes when I say professionalized, like nonprofit industrial complex, which is that it's there is no formal funding structure, there is no formal hierarchy, there is no, you know, formal plan. Um, it's people helping people when they can. And I find that super attractive, but it also stresses me out a little bit because it's not, you know, it's not consistent enough. And I'm like, and, and it's just, it just pops up here and there. And how do we know everybody's getting what they need and all of these things. And that's my attempt to want to sort of control for the situation um, is to think like, well, let's, let's create structure and therefore we can control for it. And that it, in many ways, it may not be the answer. You know, um, academics are also feeling this this same sort of question, you know, particularly in a policy school, you know, when you're doing research, are you asking the right questions, you know, and for so long, we, you know, academics have not been asking the right questions. You know, my, my biggest example is that political scientists have not studied policing as an institution until the last decade or so, you know, 
policing <laughs> as an institution. There, you know, the besides teachers, you know, these are the public servants that most people interact with, you know. And so, you know, there are a lot of academics who are really younger academics who are really thinking about how we ask questions and how do we involve the communities we want to study to ask the questions? Because I think what you're all getting at, too, is that communities know what they need. That's exactly right. And so... So part of it is how do you how do you Anna support as a board member him on the ground who knows what he needs <laughs> you know um because you don't want to take the people on the ground who are connected um to the place and to the community away from doing that necessary work um so the question is how how do we you know this is transforming how do we rethink how do we unlearn all of these sort of things to control, you know, maybe we don't need as much control as we think we do. What we need to do is learn how do we support the work that's already being done, you know, and and Lauren, I loved your idea of all these, you know, um, concert halls that are surrounded and, and Jen, you added to it, you know, surrounded by the community garden, which, you know, then has the chickens that are, you know, eating the, <laughs> distributing the seeds and it's got the pollinators and, you know, how all of that sort of then is connected to the next community. So, you know, if you've got this, you know, tightly woven series of webs, you know, that then create you know, go on and go on. And Which go gets on. back to the biomimicry thing, right? Yes, because yes, that's exactly, exactly, that's exactly what the natural systems do. You know, and when you think, you know, when I think about how the ideal sort of American democracy, you know, I think a lot of how that is supposed to be how it works. You know, you've got, you know, your local, uh, your local leaders who are elected and supposed to represent, you know, the community who are then tied to the state, who are then tied to federal, you know, and if you look at it, it should be, you know, biomimicry if it was working sort of idealistic, you know, and part of If the, money and power structures weren't what they are, right? You know, if we didn't have an institution that, that made money equal power instead of people equal power. You mean if we had women in charge? If we, <laughs> well, you know, um, I think definitely more women <laughs> in charge. I mean, I, would say, <laughs> I mean, a lot, you know, we definitely need, um, a lot less, you know, um, white men, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, white men are terrible. Um, I know a few that are fine. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> when you look at it and it's all white men, you know, they've got a certain perspective, right? Um, and there is something inherent about, you know, trying to keep that power. Well, uh, it's very much a support of the status quo because the status quo has them at the top of a, of a hierarchy. Right. And you know, the hierarchy is, is not what we need. I mean, you know, we need different levels. We need the trees to bring the water down. Right. But, you know, this, I wasn't, um, I wasn't planning on, on, I, I didn't think I would bring up Brene Brown in this conversation, mm-hmm. but <laughs> you're, just, you're just reminding me of something. I saw her speak in New York city uh, a couple years ago. And it was this like crucial conversation. It was like, that was the title of the talk. It was her and this young black gay activist on stage talking about race. It was so unfiltered. And it was just amazing, first of all, to see her like process in real time and just like, ugh, so cool. But um, she said this amazing thing that we were talking about, like, why is it 
so hard for some white people to, or many white people to kind of get in touch with white privilege. And Brene was like, it's really like the human brain just resists things that will cause it pain. And she's like, so we're wanting for these folks to first see something that's invisible to them. And then secondly, see something invisible that they know will cause them pain when they see it. It's just really hard. And it's a similar thing at play with, you know, existing power structures. They have all of the power and they're afraid to let any of it go. And that's a scary thing. You know, we don't have to get into like morality and right and wrong. Let's just like objectively look at that thing. It's hard to let go in that way. And so figuring out how to make that process feel safe, even for the people who by all intents and purposes are safe, but how can we make that, um, that act of like giving and letting go feel more accessible? It's a really, I think, important question to ponder when it's also a part of inclusion in a weird way. Like, how do we make that accessible? That's interesting. You know, it makes me think that that applies to all of us on an individual level as well. When we think about, like, there's something that um, Leah Stokes said in A Field Guide for Transformation, which was one of the pieces that she said, you know, we're all responsible through our everyday choices for what has happened. But then when you actually look to see the choices that aren't available to people, that's when you really start to see, like, politics and the corporate power at play, right? So like we we are responsible for choices that we have made within a limited set of choices and powers external to us are responsible for the limited set of choices that we have. And so there's sort of like these layers of responsibility and she's she was essentially making the argument that like, even though, and we all know this but it, with other work that we do, you you don't need to intend harm to cause harm. And that rather than thinking about your own intent and saying, I didn't mean to, you actually need to look at the harm that was caused to another person or being or place and be responsible for acknowledging that. And that's why what you're seeing, Lauren, like all of this stuff is so connected, right? Because we are looking at systems of white supremacy. We are looking at systems of capitalist power and domination. We're looking at systems of extraction at systems of hierarchy, uh, at systems of race and gender and orientations. And like at every single intersection of our lives, we see these power dynamics at play. And what is our role within that? What do we have power over? What choices can we start to make differently? And then what can we do collectively, which can then get at those larger systems changes? Totally. Just thinking to to the long term of how we shift that power balance. I mean, it, it it's so blatantly obvious to look at an administration, a Congress, a House of Representatives that's predominantly white male and expect a different outcome. Um, but how can we how can we better foster a next generation that actually wants to enter the morass of politics and and shift things around? I, I met a young man many years ago that was working on what I thought was such a brilliant concept. Um, when I was thinking, you know, the root cause of so much of this is, uh, you know, Citizens United and really overturning that. But how can we expect to to change that when, like you're saying, there's such a, a reluctance to let go of that power shift unless we truly have a representative next generation of, of policymakers who are willing to take that risk? So how, you know, he, he was working on a project to really try and 
excite and inspire and encourage um, diverse next generation young people to want to enter the field, um, which I think is so important because all you hear as a young person is how messed up politics is, how who in the right mind would ever want to enter, but how can we expect a different outcome if we don't have um, some diversity in politics? Totally. We have seen such an amazing, um, granted small group of newly elected officials over the past couple of years who are young, diverse, have come out of their direct struggle, right? Like Cori Bush and others who are like directly out of their community activism getting elected to Congress. And anytime I think, how do we, how do we get more of that? My mind immediately just turns to like, we have got to put a stop to all this voter suppression. Because if we actually look at places, you know, everybody in the rest of the country likes to make jokes about the South. Well, the South is actually a deeply suppressed place in terms of voter suppression and people that are working so hard to try to have their voices heard and they can't within a system that is, you know, essentially since the weakening of the Voting Rights Act, like passing hundreds of new like voter suppression laws every year. And and so you can actually work your way all the way back to say like, what are what are some of the core changes that have to be made. And I absolutely agree with you, Anna, it's Citizens United and it's the Voting Rights Act. Like, I think those are the two primary big picture policy shifts that we have to have in order to fix much of these systemic issues. And then you look at who has a stranglehold on those changes and it's a minority in Congress because of the filibuster. Like we can literally walk this all the way back to the filibuster. What you're saying mm-hmm. is that, that everybody should call Manchin and oh my gosh, tell him to wake the fuck up. <laughs> and Kristen, <laughs> I didn't know we were allowed to swear. You're only telling me this. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> we have to yes. do yes. Um, we over. Start over. We have to start over. There's so many swears I wanted to say, and I uh, You can swear from now on. Yes, um, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a podcast for grown-ups, right? Warned everybody um, <laughs> that we do put a warning if if we curse. Um, but yes, I. I oh, you're not going to bleep us out. You're actually just going to put a warning at the beginning of the podcast. Hell yeah! Yes. Amazing. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, you know, it's a sign of emotion, and uh, <laughs> what is the saying that uh, people who curse um, are more intelligent? So yes. Um, oh, that's definitely true. It, yes. Absolutely. And acknowledging your feelings, like anger is is okay, right? Even though I think uh, many of us have been conditioned to try to hide that part. But, you know, I think really what you're getting at, and, and I think the thing that I love about this book, and having read this book, and, you know, wanting to keep rereading this book, is that it gets at this complexity and this connection, you know, and that, that we have broken a lot of the the connections that make strong land, make strong soil, make um, strong communities. Make strong and healthy people. Like if you if you look at how sort of lonely and disconnected people feel in a very widespread way, so much of that, not all of it, but so much of that is that we are living in a world that is extracting people's labor. <laughs> people are taught then to just consume stuff to make themselves feel better, like just go shopping. And like all of these things are just sort of, not that I don't also enjoy some shopping, but I'm just saying that like as a coping mechanism, it's like the one thing we're offered. 
yeah. in our society, right? Like you're going to work really hard and then you're going to play hard. And by playing hard, it means shopping and drinking a lot. Like those are the solutions that we're offered. And all of those things, big picture are not, they do not a healthy society make, you know, they do not healthy people make. And so restructuring our relationship to work and productivity and each other and place and all this stuff's hard because we're going against a lot of social conditioning. And, you know, it's something I think about every day and I struggle with it, even though I'm thinking about it all the time and dedicating a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, mental energy to it. Yeah. And there's this sort of prevailing idea that there's a limited amount of power and that if you have power, you need to control it and, and not give any of it away. You know, this zero sum game sort of idea when when in reality when we look on the ground when we look at the soil we realize that the sum of the parts you know are bigger you know that that all the things together make something much bigger than we knew you know yeah and that i feel enters all the time into the environmental movement too a, a reluctance to share power, share funding, share the spotlight. I think, you know, some of that is, is starting to shift as people realize they, they actually need to get out of the way. Um, but I, I struggle with that also of just the desire for the branding and we need to be the one to come up with this thing rather than like what we really need is a diversity of voices. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's enough funding to go around. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I get that, you know, I'm a, a, I run a research center at USC and sometimes when I highlight something that's happening at UCLA, people are like, why would you do that? It's like, because we're all in this together and it makes no sense. If they're doing something that's great, we should learn from it, you know, it's and, just and such false competitive, Right, you know, for like and really no reason. Yeah. And and quite frankly, you know, I feel like we're at a university, you know, this is one of the places where so much of this research is happening. So many of these ideas are coming out of and yet it's one of the most patriarchal hierarchical institutions. And, you know, if that doesn't change, we're just telling future leaders that hierarchy is the way to go and just keep doing it when we know that it doesn't work it just breeds inequality and it breeds it works the, for a small number of people who are at the right. top of the hierarchy and they are very interested in keeping it that way right yeah and it's so it's so fascinating because it's like science in many ways has reinforced this idea that nature is in competition with itself all the time and that there's some species that are more important than others Right. Right. And I would encourage anyone listening to check out Lynn Margulis's writing because she was really the first woman to be like, no, nature is all about cooperation and symbiotic relationship. It's not just this like endless competition, race for scarce resources. Um, and that was that was like disregarded and discredited for so long. And it's only recently that we're starting to see more and more acknowledgement of the truth of this incredible ecosystem that we live in but you know when you really get down like like Jen you were doing earlier like tracing it back like how did we get here like what is this story that we're telling ourselves about our our like we're othering ourselves and nature that as if we're one in the same and all interconnected and that our nature and nature capital n is to compete as opposed to cooperate, 
right? And that's not to say that there isn't healthy competition, right? Darwin is slightly to blame for that. And then Darwin is, yes. of Darwin, I think, yeah. It's so true. It's so true. But like remissing that and getting back in touch with the truth of the matter, which is that um, we are interconnected. We are a part of nature. There's no othering here. Um, just having that story be told is part of the solution to, to you know, to give um, realization and reverence to all contributors in an ecosystem, all sentient living beings, not just some of them being more important, right? It's all, it's, it's everyone's contribution that makes it what it is. It so makes me think actually about how revolutionary Jane Goodall's work was in the very beginning. So first of all, you know, she was selected to go study chimpanzees because she was a young woman and Leakey thought she would be a better listener, a better observer than male scientists. And she made the grave mistake of naming the animals that she was studying instead of giving them numbers and actually starting to pay attention to social dynamics in a way that wasn't just about competition. And she completely revolutionized the way that ethology is done because she brought a different lens. And so what it makes me think about is that, you know, science is a process of learning and that depends very much so on the person engaged in the science. And there's so much of like, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are, right? And so when you have primarily men who are very much socially indoctrinated into a worldview of competition. That is what they will see when they look at nature. And that's why this diversity of perspectives and diversity of researchers and having lots of people engaged in science and lots of people engaged in storytelling is so critical because there, there is really no one singular truth to the matter, right? It, it so much depends on who is looking and then who is telling the story. And that's why, like, some of the pieces in here were, were brilliant perspectives on something that I'd never seen written about in that way, because I'd actually never seen women writing about them before. Like, their voices had not been lifted up for me before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, this is actually one of the, the really hopeful things that, that comes out of this book, but also out of what is happening sort of in the world right now, which is that there are more women, there are more people of color. Um, indigenous folks that are in places where their voice is more accessible, right? So whether it be education or nonprofits or whatever, their voices are are more accessible. And so you do have this change in environmental science where people are now going back to that idea, <laughs> that older idea that yes, everything is connected and that you need the microbiome. I, I feel when I see, even though it's very capitalistic, you know, this idea that, you know, your gut health is so important to your mental health and to your your weight and your, you know, all of these things, you know, while right now that's very, you know, part of this hierarchy and competition. And I really just want to sell you some gut health. I want to sell you some biotics, but, you know, I think that idea, you know, the more we think about it, um, I think the more it's getting into little pieces of culture, you know, which is one of the things that, you know, I'm seeing on Facebook um, which of course is for old people like me, but you know, this idea of the buy nothing <laughs> groups, you know, where there are small communities that are saying, you know, we don't, we don't need to buy so much stuff. We have stuff that we can share in this sort of nurturing of giving using a technical tool, technological tool that has been very disconnecting, um, in many ways. 
And so, you know, I see these little changes in, in small communities and you can see that they can grow. So if science is starting to realize the, the connections, you know, that's part reflection that there is also change happening culturally. It's not enough and fast enough, it feels. But the fact that this book exists you know, is a, is a really big deal. To speed it up, then if it's not enough and not fast enough, I'm, I'm still going back to the Citizens <laughs> yeah. United and filibuster thing. Yeah. You know, I sometimes think of like all of the organizations and causes and niche, like mm-hmm. so many people doing such good work. And as 501s, we're limited to the amount of time we can spend on direct lobbying and advocacy. But what if we environmentalists, human rights, you know, all of the different orgs banded together and just spent of our time on overturning Citizens United or working on voter suppression, just like, I hate to use the word scale, but, you know, scaling that, because that would, I feel like, have such a bigger impact Mm -hmm. than our organization being able to pass a ban on plastics in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. or, you know, all of these small things that make us feel like we're, we're, we're making an impact and, and and we are, but it's so small. That that's what I often just get spun out on. Root causes. How can we be, you know? And maybe even some of that is is a bit of my own colonial thinking. Like, how can we get there faster, <laughs> more efficiently? Well, you know, the thing is, we do need to get there fast. You know, yeah, um, we do. True, there's real urgency, you know, and it's like, yeah, the gradualism will kill us because we've been you know, going wrong, along gradually for way too long. And what we really need is a radical revolutionary switch, you know. Um, but at the same time, I comfort myself with thinking about like, well, <laughs> this will sound weird, not thinking about earthquakes, but thinking about how earthquakes happen. <laughs> it's like an earthquake doesn't just happen. It builds up over a long time, all of this pressure, and then suddenly it happens. And so it feels like, whoa, out of the blue, but that's been building for a long time. And so passing a ban in LA is huge. I mean, I've been on the podcasts that are talking about like this, you know, the, the reuse economy and how it's all popping off. And that ban is lighting a fire for startups, entrepreneurs, and in, you know, both in action or thinking about getting in the ring. And all of that contributes, you know, it's, it's powerful. And sometimes we don't see the impact of our actions, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of just part of the dance, you know, part of our, the work, I guess, of staying sane, but knowing that it is making an impact. So it's like, I agree with you. And I also want us to give ourselves grace. But I do think if we did contribute 5% of our time to overturning Citizens United, that would be perfect let's do it i mean that also i think that looks a lot like (laughs) what you were talking about you know these these small connected social social webs you know i think that is exactly what it is is sort of what are the local things we do and and how do we use those connections that we have to other communities to do exactly what you're saying i think uh, i think that's the way forward I really do. You know, what this is making me think of, and I'm probably going to take us off on a terrible tangent with this, (laughs) but let's just go for it. Tangents are never terrible. It makes me think about how messy 
democracy is mm. and how True particularly messy the left is in thinking about like yeah. how do we want to go about achieving progress and what does that progress look like and what does the end state look like and what are all the various things that we care about that we're all working on and we have a, a harder time on the left sort of aligning around a couple of clear messages and really pushing a clear simple agenda and we're we're a lot messier and we have more voices and we have more opinions and it has made me think about something that's really worrying me, which is not represented in this book, because this book represents what I believe is the way forward. But there is such a rise right now in sort of eco-fascism and this idea that we way. need sort of a dictatorial, top-down, you know, command and control approach to save the planet. And people are the problem. And, you know, never mind that like 90% of humanity really had very little to do <laughs> with the cause of this problem to begin with. And I find that so concerning and so worrisome. And I think that it's really attractive, especially I've seen it quite attractive to sort of like white liberals um, being like, well, we just need to, you know, crack down on all this stuff, command and control. And I'm thinking that's, that's not the path forward. But the problem with the path forward is that it's messy. And it's potentially slow. And I don't know how to reconcile those things, but I think that it's really important. Um, and I'm just paying a lot of attention to make sure that nothing, nothing I say or do or engage in starts to slide into that, into the command and control territory, because I find that really worrying. I agree with that. And, you know, around the whole idea of, of urgency, which is so important, I think, you know, one of the dangers is when that urgency is set without representation. And I've been involved in coalitions before that imploded for that very reason. Um, yes, there's urgency, but if the urgency is not shared and agreed um, by a community that's truly inclusive, then it does just lapse into the same command and control. Um, people may have different frames around urgency. There may be an urgency around, you know, the planet is dying and the coral reefs are dying. And then there might be a very different and real urgency, which is the kids in our neighborhood are sick and there's, um, there's violence in our neighborhood. And, and that's the urgency. Don't talk to me about whales. Yeah, again, ensuring that the framing and the values are, are inclusive and a diversity of voices at the table. I'm looking, you're just, you're jogging my memory. I'm looking for this, uh, for the page um, for this poem called For Those Who Wish to Lead, I think. Do you guys remember that one? Oh, For Those Who Would Govern, page 84. It stopped me dead in my tracks because it's speaking to this. Oh, I loved this one. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, it. For Those Who Would Govern by Joy Harjo. First question, can you first govern yourself? You know, like even if, it, it, <laughs> even if that was the only question, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Can you govern yourself? Do you have like, is your home in order? Is your neighborhood healthy? Are the children in your neighborhood healthy and, and able to play without getting sick? I mean, gosh, it really does have to, you know, start at, start at home and start within ourselves. And from there, the transformation. And this is also what we're, what we're talking about, you know, in terms of how we do things determines outcomes, right? And our internal space. We haven't spoken like super explicitly on this call about the internal space, but I think it's it's very much in the conversation and very relevant because we're talking about the transformation of how we relate to ourselves, to each other, um, 
to our, our greater community, what we include as part of our responsibility as our relatives, um, as, as many indigenous cultures would refer to it as. And like that does not come from policy. You know, that's culture, that's story, that's us being gentle and kind. And, and like, I, I just, <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to mention this earlier because there was something else about this, the way that this book was formatted that I found to be really, really just awesome and indicative of the path forward where there is no like big fancy title attached to each essay. It's like you could read this and not know who, the, you know, the background, the prestigious background of the person who's, who's writing. And um, there's something so humble about that and unassuming and just deeply powerful that I thought was really um, a very cool choice that I was like, really like, yes, um, I like resonate with this. It's very egalitarian. Yes. The, the, that's the feeling I had too, because there are student essays in here and they are not set apart somehow as exactly. these are the student essays and these are like the experts essays. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I just thought that was so profound. And, and then there's, um, you know, this idea of the, kind of inclusiveness, accessibility, and in the storytelling where um, I had the the pleasure of, like, I approached this book reading it, you know, cover to cover. However, my beloved would come sit with me at times and we would read together. And it's also very possible to just have somebody pop in mm -hmm. and read a couple of the of the stories with you. And it still makes perfect sense. Right. And, and it's like this really um, wonderful way of threading a book together where you can approach it from different ways and it still resonates. It still draws you in and includes you. And there's this like sweetness and, and nurturing aspect to it that allows for you to do something with togetherness, you know, with others. And we even would practice, we would, we would read them aloud to each other. And it was just the, like the loveliest way to read such a critical book. And I just hope that we have more, more, you know, having more of that in this, in this very hard, agonizing, grief-ridden and exciting process of like the most epic transformation in the 11th hour to like save humanity. You know, like how can we make that feel good and be sweet and how can we do it together and how can we sort of remind ourselves of our roots of being storytellers and, um, all of that kind of came true for me when reading the book. And it really is thanks to the way that it was put together. So I just wanted to highlight that before I forgot because it, I don't know, I just thought it was so special and treasure trove, as you were saying, Aubrey. I agree. That was like the most perfect way to end know, it was the like, podcast. <laughs> if we had like planned for that to be the end, that would have been <laughs> epic. I, uh, so yes, on that note, um, <laughs> There are just a couple questions that we like to end with, you know. So, uh, you know, I feel like I know the answer to this. Um, so, did you like? Did you like the book? <laughs> no <Yes>. comment. <laughs> uh, Not applicable. <laughs> I loved the book. So, who should read this book? Everyone. Yeah. 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 Everyone. Kids. Kids. Especially, yeah, kids young women, you know, seeing themselves modeled. I mean, that's such a cliche and obvious thing to say. No, it's not. And, and, and yeah. And, and men. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you have a favorite line, passage, essay? So I, well, I had a lot, obviously, you know me, Aubrey, I, I have trouble ever picking one favorite thing, but there was, there was a piece that really resonated with me and it was the essay, Loving a Vanishing World. Mm -hmm. and Emily Johnston and she she asks what does it mean to love anyone or anything in a world whose vanishing is accelerating perhaps beyond our capacity to save the things we love most and that put me in a really dark place for a little while but then there's this one sentence in here that I just wanted to sort of end my contribution to the podcast with she says serving the world's needs is the only thing I've seen consistently lighten that fear and grief and anger. And there is also joy in this work as it makes us more deeply alive and connected. Be the change you want. I had an impossible time picking one as well. Um, but there were a, a couple that resonated, some just for their storytelling and some for their content. Um, I found the one heaven or high water fascinating in part because it it really put a human face on the idea of willful ignorance. Um, and it was written in a really kind of fun way in terms of her going undercover and posing and going into Miami. I, I loved the way it was written, but I also loved that she found a way to also love those very same people, you know, that it's it wasn't about culpability. It was more about understanding as a coping mechanism. Um, and we've all, I think, lapsed into that coping mechanism because how, how could you not? Um, and then balancing that with uh, the sacred resistance, which I already mentioned before. Um, and then one that I just personally really resonated with was under the weather. I've never gone so far into the debilitating depression and anxiety, but I remember as a young person in my 20s, first awakening to sustainability, going through that same period of, of guilt and despair and feeling like every single thing I did was destructive. Um, and because he's a mutual friend, I'll just say that the person who pulled me out of that back in 1996, I'll never forget, was, was having lunch with Andy Lipkiss. Um, my father had said, you're turning out to be a bummer. Go, go get inspired. And he didn't really <laughs> say it to me like that. He sent me off to meet with Andy. He, and, um, and I walked away feeling for the first time, again, inspiration and feeling like, well, maybe, maybe there is a dark path forward. But if this person who's such a visionary can approach this with, with positivity, it deeply inspired me because at the time I was teaching high school students and I was imparting that doom and gloom to them. And it took a ninth grader raising his hand when I was, this was in like, I don't know, 1998, raising his hand and saying, you mean we can't even have barbecues? And it hit me like a thunderbolt that I was passing all of this guilt and despair onto these young people instead of making them feel like actually they do have agency. <laughs> I'll stop there. I mean, I could say something about just about every essay, but those were a couple that, that resonated for me. I mean, Lauren and I have the pleasure of working with, with Andy Lipkiss. I work with Andy every day now, and Lauren, I think you get to see him <laughs> once a week. And um, yeah, Andy is a, a beautiful example of somebody who sees the world for for its connections sees what it all looks like together he can actually see the whole web and he sees what a what a healthy uh future could look like for all of us and it's a real pleasure to work with him yeah it really is and you too jen <laughs> it's a love fest everyone yay <laughs> it should be it should be <laughs> i know if it's not what are we doing um, <laughs> 
You know, it's funny, Anna, I was the heaven or high water was one of my favorites as well for sounds like a similar reason. I mean, it just stood out in terms of its humor. Just so funny the way that she went undercover and was, you know, she, it was just such a playful and snarky way to make that point. And, um, and I just love that. And I think it's so vital, you know, again, kind of the, the point of like burning out and like, this is super serious and it is, and there's so much grief and it's like, okay, how do we still have fun? How do we be p- playful and snarky with no disrespect to others and like still find ways to love the, the people who are like totally in denial <laughs> and like <laughs> in their worlds? So yeah, I just love that one. Um, I also, really, really enjoyed how to talk about climate change. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a great reminder of like, you know, at the very end, when she changes her talk, she skips lunch to reformat her talk to fit in with the Rotary Club's four principles. I loved it. Right. And therefore, the message was received. I mean, that's just such um, important wisdom to remember as we're all talking about the things that we care about and wanting so desperately to connect with others and to share an important vital message of, you know, how we can stay, um, how we can build a a better future, you know, for everyone. So I love that. And there's two quotes that I, that I picked out to share. Um, This one is from, I believe black gold, which I really loved as well. Earth is a relative, not a commodity. Like that speaks beautifully. And, um, and then from becoming a climate citizen, page 132, citizenship is a sacred trust between individual and collective. That really spoke to me because, um, I feel that we need to get back in touch with what it means to be a citizen, not only to concern ourselves with our individual lives, but the impact that we have on everything around us every day and what a beautiful realization that can be. You know, we can be, we're capable of creating so much beauty and joy and prosperity if we, if we lean in, in that way, you know? So that's it for me. Can I add one more quote from, you know, when Lauren (laughs) mentioned how to talk about climate change, there's something in here that I think is really important. And it's one of the things I'm going to take back to my day-to-day work, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's a that's a piece on on how to talk to people about climate change and starting with things that matter to them. And she wrote, it isn't a matter of moving climate change up our priority list. It already affects everything that is at the top of our priority list, which is our health, our families, our jobs, our communities, and our loves. And to me, that is a completely new way of thinking about how to talk to people about it. It isn't a separate issue to try to get people to care about in addition to all of the things that they already care about. Yeah. So I thought that was great. You know, um, Black Gold was actually one of my favorites as well. And in part, I think, because over the last few months, I've been thinking about Octavia Butler a lot and the parable of the sower and how in the late 60s, early 70s, she was really talking about all of these ideas, um, saving seeds and rebuilding and regeneration and community. And like you said earlier, Jen, that sort of we do need to listen to those voices from the past and take and relearn, unlearn some of the things we've been conditioned to 
and relearn some of the things that we've been told to forget. In particular, this connection with each other and with our communities, with our places, and how those fit into the the larger global landscape. Um, I think it was really hard for me. I, I couldn't pick one or two <laughs> or three. I've got so many little dog ears and, and underlines in this. I think it was one of um, my favorite reads this this whole pandemic. And I feel just very, very lucky to have been able to have this conversation with the three of you. And I feel all of the all of the feels, you know, I do. I feel that urgency. But I also... Um, coming out of this, I feel like, oh, the people that are doing this work have all of these nice webs of connection. Just looking at that, at how my connection to Jen was able to connect me to you and you all are connected to other people who are doing this amazing work in this very thoughtful, intense, you know, full of intention and, and full of love way that uh, especially in this political landscape that we live in, um, makes me feel just full of love for all of you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining me on this conversation. I, I, I feel like we could keep talking forever. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having us. Such a pleasure. Yes. Thanks for having us. My day feels a little brighter. I honestly, after, you know, finishing most of this book felt on the verge of tears and now I feel, I feel a little more lightness. You know, I, I feel like listening to you and the way these resonated, um, you know, I love that the the Joy Harjo poem really resonated with you. Um, I shared one of the other poems, the Naima Peniman poem um, on, on Twitter today. She she does a reading uh, and it's on YouTube. It's great. It does. It makes me feel like I, I feel like I want to start my week every week with a conversation like this. <laughs> so. Thank you all again. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to our speakers today, uh, to Anna, to Jen, to Lauren. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you, our fellow book lovers, are really enjoying these conversations. I hope you're having conversations like this as you read along. Uh, with your friends, with your family. Um, and if there's something that we can do to help foster conversations, you know, let us know. We want these conversations to happen. We think it's wonderful. So to find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to a lot. I have written a lot of things to link to. So you'll find these links and more on our website, which is bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. If you're reading along with us, and I hope you are, we're going to be reading a book by an essayist in All We Can Save, Adrian Murray Brown. We're going to read Emergent Strategy. And we are going to do a live recording where you can have a chance to ask us questions um, and contribute uh, your own voice. That will be Tuesday, June 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific. So again, thank you to my guests, to our producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge, wonderful thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the Brothers Hedden. Corey and Ryan are an amazing team, and they put up with a lot from us, so thank you. I am Aubrey Hicks, coming to you from Southern California, where we are trying to regenerate our soil. Until next time, please be good to yourself and your neighbors. Thank you. <laughs>